Well, in addition to receiving kids as a gift from the Lord, one of the things we do every week here at Grace Bible Church is we study the Bible together. So we are attempting to structure our lives around the scriptures to understand who God is and what he's done for us. We're now entering into our last phase of this one-year study of Romans. This is pretty exciting. I have mixed emotions that it's actually going to come to an end. Uh, We're going to finish Romans this uh, summer. We're in part three, and this part three is the transition to what do you do in your daily life because of all that God has done for you in the gospel, right? So Paul felt it necessary to spend 11 chapters explaining that God is good to us and gracious to us in Jesus. And then now, because of those 11 chapters of grace, he says, because of that mercy, now offer yourselves. Now start living that out. And so chapter 12, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, we're going to be there the rest of the summer. It's going to talk about what does that look like in our daily life? Like how do we get along with each other? Uh, Some of us are really weird and quirky. How do we love each other in the midst of that, right? We have different backgrounds. How do we honor each other? How do we get along with the government? Uh, How do we obey God in our daily lives? Just all those kind of details of what it fleshes itself out to. That's where we're going to be now over the next a couple of months. This week, we're calling it Grace Formed Tribe, and we're starting in chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs. You can grab one of those Bibles and open it up to page 948. It'll be Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. Um, and this kind of sets the table for the rest, of this, uh, the rest of this study, the rest of where Paul is going here. He's been talking a lot, especially in chapter 11, but really all throughout Romans, about our tribal affiliation, Right? The church in Rome had this issue where they had the really religious people that grew up being taught the Bible, and then they had the crazy pagan Gentile people that were non-Jews who hadn't been taught the Bible, and those people now in Jesus were one, and they're trying to figure out how to get along. So you've got different tribes now joined as one new tribe in Christ. Throughout the scriptures, God makes it clear in the covenants that he makes with Adam and Eve, and with Noah, and with Abraham, and with David, he makes it clear that he's the one forming the tribe. If you'll remember, I've quoted many times Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says to Israel, I did not choose you because you were so great, and powerful, and impressive, but I chose you because you were so weak, because you were so puny. And in God's choosing of you and me, and those who are weak in the eyes of the world, his power can be magnified. So, We are this new one tribe. We come from all these different nations and peoples and races, and we're now one tribe of people being formed by God's grace. He's going to unpack for us what is that going to look like in our daily life. We'll read chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy 
with cheerfulness. Let me pray and we'll ask the Lord to help us to, to hear from him, to understand his word, and then we'll look at more of the details of what the text is saying here. God, we pray that you would meet us here. Uh, we believe uh, that you are speaking to us through this word, that, that your scriptures speak with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So I pray that we would be ready to listen, that you would give us open minds and open hearts. Father, you know the, the frustrations that we carry with us from the week. Uh, you know the difficulties that we're going through. You know the distractions uh, that are with us. And we ask that you would help us to hear you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Paul moves into this new section here, again, I want you to be thinking about this throughout the next several weeks, that this is the paradigm for how we live out the daily details of our lives. And the first thing that he's going to instruct us with as we think about being this new grace-formed tribe is he's going to talk about this grace-formed surrender. Uh, This is a daily practice, I believe, that God is calling us to as followers of Jesus, to continually surrender ourselves back to Jesus, to recognize all that he's done for us in Romans chapters 1 through 11, what we call the gospel, the good news that God is for us in Jesus, that Jesus took our sin and he gives us his righteousness. So that's the good news. That's the gospel. Shorthand for that can be mercy, right? God uh, should give us justice, judgment, but he offers to us mercy in Jesus, forgiveness. Another shorthand word for that is grace, By our own works and our own merit, we cannot win God's affection, but God gives it to us freely by grace. So Paul's saying here, because of his mercy, because of this mercy that I've been talking about for 11 chapters, now offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The appeal should always be by mercy. The appeal should always be by mercy. And if you're ever going to surrender yourself to God, don't surrender yourself based just on your emotions. Don't surrender yourself to God based on guilt, thinking that you're going to trick God into blessing you because you surrendered so well to him. You surrender yourself to God because of his mercy. And we, we flip that around so often. There's this phrase that's kind of beginning to be overused, I think, in the Christian world, but it's called gospel centered. Have any of you ever heard this phrase before? We talk about gospel-centered churches and gospel-centered discipleship, and there's been a lot of good that's come out of that, but I'm afraid sometimes people just, it kind of becomes a meaningless phrase because it's used so often. And so let me define it for you. Gospel-centered, as it's been used a lot in the last 20 years in Christian churches, means that the gospel both brings you into God's people, but it also is what enables you to live every day. Right? So you need God's grace to forgive you so that you can be a part of what God's doing in the world. You need to have your sins taken care of by Jesus. But you also need that to live and breathe every day. So we are gospel-dependent people. And every morning when you wake up, whatever your ritual may be, it should look something like Romans 12.1. It should look something like, once again, okay, God, I'm awake. I'm looking back on the mercy you gave me in Jesus. So now today, I'm giving myself to you again. I'm surrendering myself to you. I'm offering myself as a living sacrifice. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so he's saying, this is what real worship looks like. 
Real worship is every day. It's not just on Sunday. We talked about this a little bit last week. One of the ways that we ascribe worth to God is through our words, through singing, saying, God, you're great. And then we show unity by doing it all together with different notes, right? And we call that singing, but we're ultimately just saying, God, you're great. Well, another way that you say, God, you're great, another way of living out the spiritual worship is by offering yourself to him every single day, every single moment, by the mercies of God saying, God, I'm yours again. I belong to you. But what does that look like for you? A joke that I've heard, I think every preacher in the world has used this, but I think it's a helpful phrase, and that is, the problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. Have you ever heard that before? The problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. So what does that mean? That means every morning you need to wake back up and say, okay, God, I'm going to crawl back on the altar. Again, not to win his mercy, but because he's given you mercy in Jesus. And that order is so important that we would understand we're responding. Paul's appealing to you. I should always appeal to you by mercy. Like when we have needs in the church, it's real easy for me to just want to twist arms and just say, come on, we've got a need, fill the need, right? God will love you more if you fill this need. We need people in the nursery. God hates you unless you work in the nursery, right? But that's, that's not a gospel way of appealing to people, right? Here he's saying, I'm appealing to you. Now, everything he's going to say in the next four chapters, I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God. I spent 11 chapters saying, God is merciful, God is merciful, God is merciful. We deserve judgment, he gives us mercy. We deserve judgment, he gives us grace. That's the gospel. I'm going to appeal to you based on that. Because of that, wake up in the morning and say, okay, I remember, oh yeah, you've shown me mercy. I'm yours again, Lord. Now, I want to give you an image uh, to think through. I've, I've preached on this passage. This is one of my favorite passages. I've preached on it so many times that you know, sometimes you're kind of looking for a creative angle to explain some of these words in a new way. And so I fixated this, word, uh, this week on the word present. So present in this translation, other translations say offer. What is that word? Present yourself. That surrendering process of presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. Offering yourself as a living sacrifice. What is that word? Well, the word's an interesting word. It's kind of a word that means to offer yourself at attention in the service of another. So think of it like a soldier reporting for duty or like a butler standing by, like, do you need anything, right? I was thinking about when I played sports, and I think this is true in every sport. I think this is kind of even true in in music in different areas, but there's always kind of a ready position. Any of you ever played an instrument? Any of you ever played a sport? There's always kind of a ready position. I grabbed a picture of someone in their ready, ready. We call this ready, ready in football. You would have this ready, ready stance, right? Um, I've coached a lot of kids' sports as well. And it's one of the things you have to teach kids because a kid's natural stance is kind of like this, right? And that's not really ready to play anything. You got to get your hands out of your pockets, right? You got to bend your legs a little bit, get your center of gravity down. Depending on the sport, they're all a little bit different. But you got to get yourself ready. And that's what the word present means. It means present yourself, off yourself, be on standby. So it's an active thing. It's not a passive thing. I use the word grace-formed surrender. Well, Surrender sounds passive, like, okay, here I am. I'm laying on the ground for you, God. Well, it's actually an active thing, right? So think of what is it going to take for you every morning in your spiritual time of recentering yourself on Jesus and the mercies of God. What does that take for you to get in your ready, ready stance so that you can offer yourself in whatever he calls you to do day to day? I want you to be praying about what that looks like in your life. Because I think it's going to be a little different for all of us, but we all should be continually presenting ourselves back to Jesus. Again, not to win his affection, 
but because he's given us his affection in Jesus by the mercies of God. He's appealing by the mercies of God. Because of that, we will surrender ourselves to him. So what could it be for you that God's asking you to surrender, right? Um, maybe you're holding too tightly onto something, and he's saying, I-, I want you to offer that back to me in service of me and my kingdom. Um, it may be your time. Some of us cling tightly to our time. Uh, I thought of this one first because it makes me feel better about myself because I'm pretty loose with time, right? So I can pat myself on the back and go, hi, I'm so gracious with my time. But usually what that ends up looking like is I'm actually giving time to one person and stealing it from the next person. So I've, you know, I've got to be humbled again on that. But pray and say, God, what do you want me to give? And who do you want me to give to? How can I offer myself as a living sacrifice? How can I surrender myself to you? Is it your time? Do you need to hold your time more loosely and spend it on people for God's glory? Maybe it's your money. Do you need to spend your money for God's glory? Offer it. Uh, Again, this is another area where we try to appeal according to God's mercy, right? When we say, as a church, we need more money to meet our budget to function, we try not to say, um, and God will hate you if you don't give us more money, right? What we try to say is because Jesus has given everything to you, we're asking you to give so that we can serve him through the organized ministries of the church. I want to say thank you. The last couple of months, the, the giving has actually increased, and we've, we've really fought that tension of trying to say, hey, these are the actual needs. We really need you to give, but give only because Jesus has given to you, right? And I'd say moving forward again, we want to continue to encourage that. Give. We think you can give financially to these ministries and other ministries to serve people for God's glory, but only do it because Jesus gave to you, right? Don't do it because you think you're somehow winning God's favor through that action. Do it because of God's mercy, because he's shown mercy to you in Christ, Another area where he might be calling on you to give more of yourself is in your vocation. I think as Christians, we often tend to think, well, I've got like this spiritual part of my life. Maybe it's church and maybe I might read my Bible in the mornings. Um, Maybe I'll go to a small group or a Bible study during the week. But then there's my job. And that's a God-forsaken territory that God has nothing to do with, right? But no, I I think God wants to be there as well, and for you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice in that place as well. What does it mean for you to do your job with excellence to honor God? What does it it mean for you to do your job in a way where God sees or other people see God's mercy at work in your life as you serve them and as you love them and pray for your coworkers and show patience with them and hold people accountable and do work well? What, What does that look like in your job, in your vocation? Pray that God would show you the areas of your life where you need to surrender more of yourself to him. Is there an area you're holding on to? And you're saying, you, got, you can't have that, God. I'll only give you this area in my life, but I won't give you that area. Pray that the Spirit would, would show that to you. That's what I'm praying for you this week. The next thing I want us to see in verse 2 is this idea of grace-formed obedience. So what does obedience actually look like when you're obeying God's law, his standards, what he tells you is right and wrong? What does that look like to understand it? Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So kind of three main things here. First is don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by Jesus, by this grace, by God at work in your life. The process looks like the renewing of your mind. One of the great ways to renew our mind is through understanding the scriptures and believing what God says is true about the universe, and our mind is renewed. We begin thinking in new ways because of what God's word teaches us. 
And then finally it says, uh, there is this testing where you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's this living out then. It's not just mind, but it's actually living it out. I want to start with the first phrase. Don't be conformed by the world to the world, but be transformed. And this word conformed, it's this idea of being fashioned or shaped. And so when you think about obedience, the question really is, who are you obeying? Because we're all obeying someone. Are you just simply obeying what feels good in your heart? Romantic worldview, it seems nice. It seems cool. Are you obeying your heart? Or are you obeying your own mind? What seems wise to you? Proverbs says twice, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Are you just obeying what seems right to you in your own mind? Are you obeying uh, the social norms of your community? Well, everybody in the community does this. Everybody that I know lives this way, so that's how I live. I just am fitting in with the group. Who are you obeying? We're all obeying someone. And I'd say here he's saying that we should have a grace-formed obedience. We should be shaped by God's mercy and God's grace so that we obey God and listen to his voice. So don't be conformed. Um, Things want to shape us and press us, and I I thought the best illustration of this would be a waffle iron. Any of you ever used a waffle iron? Yeah, some of you? Okay, waffle iron is this really cool device And I grabbed one here, a picture of a Texas waffle iron. Uh, If you've had the privilege of staying at a hotel in Texas, you've probably seen one of these before. Texas is so great. We have like Texas-shaped waffles, Texas-shaped tortilla chips. It's it's really a blessing for you to get to be here. I just want you to know that. (laughs) It's uh, so many rich blessings here. Um, And so you've got this Texas-shaped waffle iron, right, that conforms the batter to its image. And the world is a system that's always trying to shape you and conform you. Now, just to be clear, world is the Greek word cosmos. It means the system of the world. It's kind of like the order of how things work in this world. And this world right now is still broken by sin. Even though Jesus came and he forgave us for our sins, we are now bringing that new order. We are now living out that new order in our personal lives. But there's an overall order of brokenness, right? And so you don't want to just do things the way everybody else does it because then you're like this waffle getting pressed into the shape of the current world order. That's different than uh, like the earth. Um, God loves the earth. God made all things good, plants and animals, and uh, those things are good. The future we look forward to is a renewal of all creation. And so God likes us to plant things. God likes us to build things. God likes for us to change diapers, right? So we want to make sure we're not confused and think he's saying, Everything about the world is bad, right? All physical things are bad. That's a Greek idea. No, we, we believe that the physical world is good, and God has called us to fulfill Genesis 1 and 2 and, and be people that build cities and neighborhoods and make culture and make things to image God. But we have to know that there's a system over all of that because this world is broken by our sin. There's a system that's trying to press us so that we look more like everybody else look more like the accuser, Satan, look more like the evil systems that are in place. And God's saying, don't let yourself be pressed into that waffle iron, okay? Don't let yourself conform to that shape. Now, just to be clear, I don't, I don't think it's bad to get conformed to the image of Texas. I'm just really talking about the evil world. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So grace-formed obedience means not being shaped like the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can test and understand what God's will is. So, in view of God's mercy, you know God is good to you. B, 
because God is good to you, you start doing what he says. And that is so important because we want to flip it around and say, I'm going to do what God says, and then he will have to love me. And that's completely backwards. We, we do what he says. I try to obey the Ten Commandments because Jesus loves me, right? Before I knew Jesus, when I looked at God's law, I thought that God's law was just there to ruin my fun. I, I don't know if any of you have thought that way. But now that I'm convinced that Jesus loves me, I understand that doing what God says is a good idea, right? Being a moral person, following God's rules, being conformed to him and his rules instead of the world's rules is actually good and it's for my joy. Now, just to be clear, on some of his rules, it comes slower than others, right? Some things, when you, when you see how good God is to you in Jesus, you just immediately want to follow him and obey him in all these areas. But there will be little sticking points for you. There will be some commandments, there will be some rules, there will be things that God calls you to that you're like, are you sure about that one, right? Like, God, are you sure? Because that seems like a terrible idea. And he's like, no, I'm, I love you. I want your joy. You can obey me. You can trust me. And so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about grace-formed obedience. It's, it's trying what he says is true and beginning to live it out. And I want you to see this, this pairing of the renewing of your mind with the testing Look at the second half of this verse again. Verse two, so don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, hear this part, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, What Paul is getting at here is you begin living out what is true. You don't just know it like something you can pass on a multiple choice test. It's a big danger for us as modern people. We think knowing means facts that live in our brain. But in the Bible, knowing means doing. And so if you say, I know what's right, but I've never tried it, you don't know it. You don't know it. God wants you to try it, right? He says, try this, obey me, listen to me. Uh, Understand who I am and what I say about sexuality. Understand who I am and, and what I say about how you handle your money. Understand who I am and what I say about how you live your daily life, how you deal with people in the business world. In all of these areas, we often call it morality. We don't really know it unless we're trying it. We don't know it unless we're doing it. Then you're testing it. And the more you test what he has said, then you'll actually be able to discern right and wrong better. You get better at it. You grow in wisdom by doing what God says. And so often we're like, "Ah, I'm not sure about that, God. I'll wait until I feel like it is a good idea. Maybe later I'll feel it. You're not going to feel it unless you try it. So I just would really encourage you to not try it to win his grace, but try it because you've got his grace. And then the more you try what God asks you to do, then you have this grace-formed obedience where you begin actually understanding it. It begins to make sense for you. Um, I've seen this come true in many different areas of my life. The one that I think of the most is in marriage where I remember about seven years of marriage, we did this um, love language thing, you know, the love language. I've shared this before, so half of you have heard this illustration before. Uh, But the love languages say we all kind of love each other in different ways, right? Like some people want to speak words of encouragement. Some people want to buy gifts. Some people want to spend time together. Some people want to, uh, I don't know what the other ones are, like chili peppers. or I don't know. There's all kinds of weird love language stuff, right? And there's just different ways that you show grace to people. You show love to people. And I figured out at seven years, we took this little test, and I was like, wait, my wife's is, are these, and mine are these. That means for her to feel loved, I have to do things I don't like. 
that hardly seems fair, right? (laughs) That just doesn't seem appropriate, God. But really, it was a step of faith. I said, well, God loves me, and he saved me, shown me mercy and grace in Jesus, so maybe I should try doing these things I don't like to show grace and love to my wife. And you know what? After trying them, it wasn't so bad anymore. I didn't hate them, right? Yeah, thank you. (laughs) And she stayed with me. No, that wasn't my wife. But she's encouraging me. Thank you. As we try things, we understand things. So again, just going back to the main point, we renew our mind by reading and understanding the word, by viewing the mercy that God has for us. And as we begin to understand what he is calling us to do, we have to step out in faith and do it. You don't know it unless you do it. Don't tell me you know doctrine. Don't tell me you've read theology books and and then you're not loving people then you don't know theology. You don't understand Christian theology if you've read some theology books and you're not loving people. You can't know things in a Christian worldview without doing them. They go together. They go together. So that's an important thing to understand. What are some some ways where we fall off the, the boat on this? There's just three things I wanted to emphasize. These are just things I've observed where I think or I worry that we are getting conformed to the world. So three areas where I worry that we might be being conformed to the world. One is consumerism. Uh, consumerism is this idea that we can be happy in life by buying stuff, by having more things. And I just want you to think about it. God says clearly that he gives us things to enjoy. And as we receive them with thanksgiving, that's a good thing, right? We don't want to be the kind of false teachers that Paul talks about that are always forbidding the enjoyment of things in this world. So we would say, yeah, things are good. We can enjoy things. We can celebrate the gifts that God gives us. He gives us houses, and he gives us meals, and he gives us fun, and there are things that we can enjoy in this world for his glory. But I would just say we want to watch out and make sure we're not falling into the the trap of thinking things will ultimately satisfy us, because they won't. Only Jesus will. So consumerism is saying, I don't really need Jesus. I need more things. So, So watch out. Are you being conformed to the world's image in that area? Another area is sexuality. In the area of sexuality, everybody's head went up when I said that. In the area of sexuality, uh, we tend to see sexuality as something just for me. It's about my pleasure. It's about me. We see it very individualistically. But the Bible paints sexuality as this beautiful gift, um, this beautiful fire that should be set in the fireplace of traditional covenantal marriage, right? There are boundaries to it. And yes, it's a gift from God, but it's not something just for all of us to enjoy. It's not just about our pleasure, right? It's about bonding, it's about covenant, it's about families, it's about procreation, and all these other things, but we just kind of strip it away by ourselves and say, no, it's just about me and my pleasure. It's another area of our life where, again, we're getting conformed, we're getting pressed and shaped into the understanding of the world instead of what the scriptures say. And then finally, um, this is kind of broad, and I don't have this really nailed down real well, it's just something I see, is we've all become addicted to screens, right? Right? It's just something I see. We tend to think of it as neutral, but I want you to pray and ask the Lord to, to show you where that might be changing who you are, right? Might be changing how you see God and see other people. I see this all the time with kids. Um, there's a lot of brain research out there. It, it messes with your kids' brains. Like, just know that, okay? That's not really in the Bible, but it's in science. It messes with your kids' brains if you're just always sticking a screen in front of their face. And so I would challenge you, if you're a parent, don't always stick a screen in your kid's face. And if you're an adult, don't always stick a screen in your face, right? Ask for wisdom. Again, this is a wisdom area. It's not a forbidding at all. 
It's just saying, God, will you lead me? Will you show me how I'm being conformed to the world and help me be transformed so that I can obey you, a grace-formed obedience? Um, I think this is a helpful way to think about it. Every time you pop up a screen to look at, have fun, watch a movie, go through Facebook, look at the news, I just want you to imagine that you're pulling out what we used to call a binky, a pacifier, right? So every time you bring up a screen, I just want you to think about this. Just a little, little role play thing in your mind. Just think, I'm popping a pacifier into my mouth. Okay? Just imagine that next time you're spending time on your phone while you're waiting in line. Okay? I'll do it too. I'll do it as well. But it, just, it would just kind of maybe help us break some of those habits. But again, ask the Lord to lead you. I, I can't lay down a rule and say, well, you know, Three minutes a day is appropriate, and that's what we're all going to do here in our church. I'm just saying, ask that the Lord would show you, am I being conformed to the world, and where do I need to change so I can obey you and be transformed by your wisdom? Last point is grace-formed membership. Grace-formed membership. This is going to be in verses 3 through 8, and so there's a big idea that we'll see here in verses 3 through 8 that then will be kind of lived out repeatedly throughout the rest of Romans. Um, So grace-formed membership is the concept that we are members of each other, that we belong to one another. There's two words that are used repeatedly in the New Testament. One is this word member. It's the Greek word melos. There's another word uh, that's often translated as fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia, uh, and it can also be translated as partnership. And those two words are the words for us belonging to one, uh, one another yet being individual parts that do our own thing, right? So um, in New Testament Greek, you would call my thumb a member of my body. We tend to say body parts, right? But in New Testament Greek, you would say a member. So my thumb is a member, right? My nose is a member. My elbow is a member. My eyes are members. They're all members of my body, right? So we all, all us parts, we work together under the control on a good day, under the control of my head, And uh, all these parts work together to function as one body, okay? So we're all different, but we belong to Jesus. We are his body. Uh, Another way to think about it is we are Jesus' hands and feet in the world. We are his presence in the world to do his will, to love people, to show his justice and his grace in the world. So starting in verse 3, he says it this way. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So starting in verse 3, he's going back again to this uh, grace motivation. So remember in verse 1, he said, because of God's mercy, offer yourself. Now he's saying the same thing. Because of the grace God's given you, because of your faith and your trust in Jesus, now function as a part of his body. Look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So he gives a list of different gifts here, different ways that you can serve each other in the church. The first one is prophecy, and that one's a little weird for us because we tend to think of the word prophecy as uh, predicting the future, right? So that's kind of the first thing we think of. But I would say really the first definition of prophecy is proclaiming truth. Um, In the Old Testament, one of the ways that you knew you could trust an Old Testament prophet 
is he would predict something and it would come true and then you knew he was really of God, right? So if you actually take the time to read the Old Testament prophets, there's like a little bit of prediction and a lot of just um, exhortation, teaching, moral proclamation. You should live and obey God, right? So prophecy mainly means proclaiming the truth. These other words I think are a little more self-explanatory. Serving, teaching, exhorting means to encourage, contributing, giving, and generosity, leading with zeal, showing mercy to other people. He's just kind of giving an overview of the different kinds of wiring, personality, and gifts that God has given us to serve one another. And I think it's really important that we understand that this is not an exhaustive list, right? You may look at that list and you're like, I don't know if that really fits me or if I'm on that list. Well, he gives a different list in 1 Corinthians 12, a different list in Ephesians 4, a different list in 1 Peter 4. So in different places, he gives different lists. So his, his point is not just like set up boxes and say, you can't function unless you're in this box, right? That's not really Paul's point. His point is kind of whatever your gift may be, use it according to the grace that God has given you. So he's got that grace motivation. And he says, again, in verse 3, don't let yourself think more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. So your identity, how you think about yourself, affects how you use your gifts to serve other people. And there's two ways that we go wrong, right? Um, There's one way of thinking highly of yourself where you think, I'm awesome, right? Some of us struggle with that. I'm awesome. I am God's gift to everyone. And you just kind of run off thinking that you can solve all your problems without God's grace. We call that pride. And he's saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. There's another problem that some of you have, and that problem would be shame. And you know what? Shame is another way of thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Because you think you're so bad that God can't do anything with you. You're saying, I'm so broken. I'm so bad. There's no way God can use me. That's just another form of pride. So we all struggle with pride. We either have an elevated, look at how great I am pride, or we have a, look at how terrible I am pride. But they're both not sober judgment. They're not realistic. So realistic, sober judgment would be saying, I've got some gifts. I've got some sins. My gifts are only because God gave them to me. My sins are something I need God to forgive me for. But he does, and he can use me, and he wants to use me. So go be used by God. Go serve him. Go use the gifts that you have because of his grace, because of his mercy to you. The way Peter talks about it is he just boils it down to only two gifts. He talks about those who speak and those who serve. He says, if you speak, speak as if it's God's words, not yours. Why? Because the temptation, if you're a speaker, I know this temptation is, I have this temptation to think, I'm a good speaker. I did that. He says, don't, don't fall into that. Think, if you speak, it's God's words I'm speaking. And if you serve, some of you are are really gifted at getting things done, right? If you're a server, serve with the strength that God provides. So your temptation is to fall into thinking, look at what I've done. I can do things really well. And he's saying, no, recognize it's God working through you. So have that grace orientation so that it's grace-formed membership. The part you play is because of God's grace. You're not too great to need his grace, and you're not too bad that he can't use you. His grace forgives you. His grace uses you. And so he wants to move forward in using you. And whatever your grace, whatever your gifts are, I grabbed a picture here of a kid's sport team. Um, 
This is a uniform picture. They're all lined up. We got the short kids on the front. We got the tall kids in the back. Standard sport team photo, right? They're all in their uniform, which makes them look very what? Uniform, right? In the body, we've got two things at play. We've, we've got the idea of uniformity. We are to be unified, one body. We are Christ's body. We belong to him. That's what the church is supposed to be. But we've also got diversity. And man, if you ever get a chance, coach kids sports, because it is so fun. When, you, when you're coaching little kids, sometimes you're watching these little kids run around, and you look at their, their biomechanics, and you're like, I can't believe this kid can even function, right? You know? Like you've got giant heads and little bodies. You've got giant bodies and little heads. You've got really long legs and short arms. And you've got long arms and short legs and just all of these combinations. That is one of the most fun things for me when I was coaching kids sports was just to watch the kids. Like, look at these kids. They're all different, right? Some of them are better. Some of them are, you know, faster, slower, stronger, weaker, taller, shorter. Just all this, all this diversity. It's really fun to see that and to see them, them coming together. So recognize that God has given you different abilities different handicaps, things you're strong at, things you're weak at, but he still wants to use you, right? God is going to use you no matter who you are. So have sober judgment, seeing yourself as you really are. You can't do everything, right? You're not that awesome, but also recognize you're not so terrible that he can't use you. He he wants to use you. He wants to use you. Um, I'm a right-handed person, and so uh, my right hand is more skilled than my left hand. Anybody else live this way, right? You got a hand that's better than the other. It can do more. What happens if you break your good hand? Your left hand has to kind of step it up, right? Or vice versa if if you're left-handed. The other hand has to kind of pull more weight. And that's the way the body is as well. So your gifting is important. If you're good at something, that's a pretty good indication that you should use that gift to serve the Lord and serve other people. But if there's a need, if the body has a need, right? Like if, if you're pretty good at this thing, but you know this other person's better at it, but then they go down, well, you need to step up, right? If I break my right hand, my left hand needs to step it up and do more. As long as my right hand's functioning, my left hand doesn't do as much. It's more of a supporting role. Just recognize that what your gifting is isn't the only thing to consider. The needs of the body must be considered as well. Your brothers and sisters have needs. The community has needs, and you need to use what you have for God's glory. Um, I was a children's pastor for four years uh, at Temple Bible Church in Temple, the town where all the bad people live. And um, that's a joke. I I grew up there. But when I was a children's pastor, uh, of the staff, there's like eight of us on staff. That was probably the job that required the most organization and the most administrative skill. And most of you probably know me well enough to know that's not me, neither one of those words, administration or organization. So so what did I do? Well, I had gifts. I'm a little more of a teacher, a little more of a counselor, a little more of a visionary, and I just kind of took those gifts and kind of crammed them into the administrative and organizational needs. I did the best I could. I took the loaves and fishes that I had, and I offered them up. So, So don't get too bent out of shape about your gifts. God can use you even when you're functioning outside of your giftedness. He can use you still. Just take what you got and and throw it, right? Just throw everything in the kitchen sink at whatever God has called you to do. And and know that God will use you because he's the kind of gracious God that wants to use us. He wants to work through us and our strengths and our weaknesses so that the world can see that God's at work. It's a supernatural enterprise. So what are the needs you see around you? Have you done an inventory? What are the needs around you in this community in your neighborhood, in this church, in your family? 
What are the gifts that God's given you? Join those things together. Meet needs, use your gifts. Do both. Don't just think one or the other, but do both. As we wrap up and think about being a part of this grace-formed tribe, I wanted to go back again to Abraham. Remember how God was making promises to Abraham. Abraham was this guy that couldn't have kids. And Abraham said, or God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you kids and I'm going to give you nations that will come through you, right? You will have all these descendants and you will bless the whole world. And one of the ways that God demonstrated this to Abraham was he made a covenant with Abraham. And in that time, they would make covenants by taking animals and slaughtering them and cutting them in half. And you would walk together with your covenant partner through the blood of these slain animals. And the symbolism of a blood covenant was then, may it come upon me as it has come upon these animals if I don't fulfill my obligations to this covenant. So God makes a covenant with Abraham. They split the animals in half. And what God does is really interesting. He knocks Abraham out and puts him over on the side. And God passes through the animals. The presence of God uh, symbolized through smoking fire, passing between the blood of the animals. And what God is saying there is in the covenant that he's making with us, he's saying, may it come upon me if I don't fulfill my side of the obligations. And then he's also saying, may it come upon me if you don't fulfill your side of the obligations. And that is most clearly seen in the grace that God shows to us in Christ. Because we didn't fulfill our obligations in this world. And so it came upon Christ. He was torn apart for us, just as God promised would happen in the Abrahamic covenant. And so we are a people who are formed by that grace, by God who has given himself for us. So that should send us out the door to to offer ourselves to serve him, to obey him, to love the people around us, to use the gifts that he's given us for his glory. Let me pray and we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you for the grace that you've given us in Jesus. We thank you that you you were torn apart for We thank you, though, that death wasn't the end of the story, that Jesus rose from the dead with power, showing that he has conquered sin and death. And so, Father, we pray that that resurrection life would be at work in us, that we would care for the outsider, that we would care for the oppressed, that we would care for each other, that you would serve us, that you would use us to serve each other and to serve our community, that you would work through us, that you would empower us. We pray that you would do all this for your glory, that your grace would be clearly seen in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.